So what I want to talk about today is the original design. So in the beginning, when the Lord created humankind, we go back to Genesis 1, and God created Adam and Eve, and he made them in his image and likeness, and he gave them dominion over all things. Genesis 1, 26 and 28 says, God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and multiply or increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Just a quick comment when it says, let us, the Hebrew word is Elohim, which can be tr translated in the plural. So let us, God is saying the word for God is Elohim. Let us, meaning what? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, make man in our own image. It's not three gods, but this speaks of the, the triune nature, the very trinity of God himself. Now, in Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, I want you to see this, guys, in the Passion Translation. It's actually verses 5 and 6. He's speaking of the same um, event that happened at creation when Adam and Eve were created. And God says, God says this through David. David is in marvel of God. Like he's looking around, he's seeing everything that God has made and God has created. And he's like, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he just blurts out and he says, now, what is man that you're mindful of him? In other words, like, why would you bestow such favor on us? Why would you treat us, you know, just so, so powerfully or, or so, what's the word I'm looking for? Help me out here. So specially, you know? And so what he, what he actually says, and you need to see this in the Passion Translations, it says, what honor you've given to men, created only a little lower than Elohim, crowned like kings and queens with glory and magnificence. Wow. Now, guys, how many have heard that? Whoa, you've made them a little lower than the angels. Right? You see that? And Okay. Translation error, big time. The word that is translated angels there is Elohim. Look it up. It's Elohim. It's the same name for God in Genesis chapter 1. Some modern translations say you made men just a little lower than yourself or a little lower than God. The word is Elohim. Without getting too complicated, I, I won't get into it, but it was the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, that actually changed that. But the idea here is you've actually made humankind a little lower than God. Why? Genesis 1. We were made in his what? Image and likeness. We're made in God's image and likeness. What an amazing thing. And it says here, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, and the idea is here that you've crowned them like kings and queens with glory and magnificence. Then listen, you have delegated to them mastery over all you have made, making everything subservient to their authority, placing earth itself under the feet of your image bearers. Wow. Have you ever thought about yourself that way? I mean, come on. I made a little lower than God himself. I said, well, no, sin, right? For all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. Absolutely. But the whole idea, original creation, was that we are made a little lower than God himself, in his image, in his likeness, crowned with glory and honor. What an amazing thing. Given dominion, given authority, to rule and to reign over all of God's creation. Now, we know that Adam and Eve sinned, didn't they? God said, hey, guys, you know, you've got all this available to you, and go at it, but there's this tree, this one tree. Don't touch it. The day you eat of that tree, if you do, he said, for if you do, the day you eat that tree, you will surely die. In the Hebrew language, it actually says, in dying, you will die. If you eat the fruit of the tree, this is what it says, in dying, you will die. What does that mean? That's a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew. In dying, you will die. Some people have proposed it means the death process will begin. Because even though you may not have died physically at the very moment, because they didn't. In fact, Adam went on to live to be 960 years of age. Whoa. And guess what? I think Eve was pretty close. We don't even know. Maybe she lived longer than him. But the, so the point is, they lived to be a long time. So they didn't drop dead the very moment they ate of that forbidden fruit. But in dying, you will die. The death process began. Another way that can be translated is this. It speaks of a punitive measure toward a transgressor. So if you do this, boom, you're dead. And any other time you read that, there's only two times that, that it's not immediate that the person dies. But there's like a death sentence, in other words, that is delegated, that is given if you transgress my commands, you're going to die. You're dead. So God was saying, I'm taking this whole thing seriously. I mean, giving you all this freedom, and you've got all access to everything but this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't you touch that. Don't you eat the fruit from that tree. If you do, you will die. Now, I want to define what death is, because I believe that a lot of times we really don't fully understand exactly what the Lord was talking about. And he said, you're going to die. Obviously, they died spiritually. They were separated from the presence of God. They ended up being kicked out of the garden. And not to say that they didn't have any type of interaction with God, that God didn't communicate with them, because in Genesis 4, we see that God is speaking to Cain. So God's still talking. There's somewhat of a relationship going on there, but it's different. God can talk to anyone. How many know that? But God doesn't have an intimate relationship with everyone. So the point is because of sin, right? Because we're separated from him. And so what happens is he's saying they died spiritually. Now, they would and they will die physically, even though, as I said, they lived to be at 960 years old. Adam did. They would die physically. Before that, there was no death. People live forever. But this is the truth. Death entered in the world. We know the earth was cursed. We, we know that a lot of different things happened. There was the curses that, that God spoke about in the third chapter of Genesis. But the other thing that we realize is that this affected the human race. 
So not only did they experience death, but we experience death up until the present. In fact, death is something that we will all experience as the human race until Jesus comes back. Because the final enemy to be defeated, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is death. But will be a resurrection. The curse will be removed from the earth. That's called the regeneration. And then there'll be a resurrection. We'll receive new bodies that will never die, never grow weary, never get tired, never be sick. So there is death in that sense. And this is what it says in Romans 5, verse number 12. It says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, what? And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now, what does that mean? We didn't do it, but we're experiencing the consequences of that. Now, of course, we look back at the original sin. We say we didn't do that, but we've all sinned. And as a result, we've all transgressed God's command. We've all, in a, in a, in a way, partaken of the tree that God says don't eat of. We'll talk more about that. What was the purpose for God telling them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen to this. What ends up happening is sin enters the world, and people are turning away from God. Their minds have become corrupt. Their will and their affections are given over to lustful and evil desires. They start hating one another. They start uh, abusing one another, attacking one another. We read in the fourth chapter, the first murder, right after this. So the world is sick. The world is in a bad place because of sin. Now the soul of humankind has been uh, entirely defiled. And then we read later on, just before God wiped the world out with the flood, in Genesis, he says this. He says, for I know what's in their hearts, and their minds are just continually filled with evil. Evil after evil is what he, how he diagnoses the human race. And so God sends the flood as a result of that. And he destroys the earth, preserves Adam and, uh, I'm sorry, Noah and his family. It's like the, the person who prophesied and said, thus says the Lord, Abraham, build me an ark. You know, everyone, you get, did you catch that? No. Like Abraham didn't build the ark, right? Okay, all right. But anyway, so what happens is we see very clearly here that the world is in a bad place. Things are not good. And so what happens is God has a plan. Goes back to Genesis, right? On the day you sin, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. So what happens? They realize they're naked, and God now says, okay, we need to take care of this because now you have knowledge of good and evil. And so God clothes them with garments, with skins, animal skins. What does that mean? It means something died. They should have died. But because God was merciful, he killed animals instead, and God ended up taking those animal skins and clothing Adam and Eve with that. But it was a prophetic picture of what would happen 
when the Lamb of God, for many, many, many years, for hundreds, thousands of years, they would slaughter lambs to, to cover their sins, right? But then ultimately, when John the Baptist is announcing that the Messiah has come, he refers to him and he points to him as the Lamb of God, the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb that would take away the sins of the world. So Jesus becomes the Lamb of God. So it's a prophetic picture of what would happen ultimately because the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and lambs would never take away the sins of the world. It would, it, it, it's just something symbolic. It's just something temporary. But the actual removal of sin could not happen through sacrifices because even the very best sacrifice is still human effort. It's still our attempts at trying to take care and atone for our own sins. But only Jesus, who became a man and was a perfect man, died on the cross, never sinned, was raised back to life again, and he paid the price so that we could be forgiven and we could be given new life. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now, one of the best-kept secrets uh, in the Bible is that when Jesus came into the world, he came for the purpose, he died on the cross, he rose again, to redeem and restore to humankind what was lost by Adam and Eve in the garden. I want to just look at this particular verse of Scripture. It's found in Luke chapter 19. It says this in Luke 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek, and notice this, save the lost. Amen? All right. I want you to see something. This is a better and more fuller understanding of what this verse actually means. Now, in our language, no matter what your language is, the meaning of this verse will be different than what it actually means in the Koine Greek language in which the New Testament was written. The word that is translated save is sozo. Sozo it means to heal, to make whole, to restore. It's a very powerful word, to rescue. All right. Now, look at the, Latin, the next word, loss. That, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What is he referring to here, the word lost is the Greek word apollyon. And the idea, in fact, the devil is called at one point the apollyon himself. And apollyon means destroyer. Comes from Greek mythology, but in the book of Revelation, he's referred to as apollyon. And what it actually says is that God actually came. God actually sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, to heal to make whole, to restore what? What was ruined, what was destroyed, what was killed. The meaning of lost, Apollyon, means destroyer, murderer, or ruiner. Someone, is there such a word as ruiner? I don't know. But the, the point is, it means to ruin, to destroy, to kill. Now, if you look at it, it's very interesting. Some other translations, like the New King James Version, says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save, listen to this, that which was lost. That which was lost. Now, 
I've heard scholars, and, and I, I mean, I've heard pastors, even scholars, say, well, that's not accurate because in the Greek language, there's no such reference to, you know, to that, to, to, uh, to that. It just literally says that he came to seek and to save lost. That's what it says in the Greek. Jesus came to seek, to save, to sozo, lost. What does it mean? It means this. Jesus came to seek out. He came on a search and rescue mission, in other words, to save, to heal, to restore, to make whole destruction, ruin, what was killed, what was murdered. So when the Bible says in the New King James, for example, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, it's actually very accurate. That which was lost. Now, it's not just saying people that are lost, but it's referring to something way beyond just saying, dude, you're lost. You're messed up. You're going to hell or whatever. It's referring to so much more than that. It's saying that Jesus came to restore everything that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. Everything that was ruined, everything that was destroyed, everything that was killed, Jesus came to restore it. So what happened in the garden, he came to bring back, to bring a restoration. So what, ha what happened? Okay, obviously physical death entered the human race, but more than that, intimacy and identity with God was lost. That's probably the greatest thing. When you talk about Christianity today, and guys, this is why, let me just say this. This is why when we, talk, when we realize the Bible says in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel of the kingdom must be preached as a witness to all the nations of the world, and then the end will come. And you realize that missiologists tell us out of the, you know, 13,000 diverse ethnic groups in our world that there's about 6,900 that still are in need of hearing the gospel. Or sorry, is it 15,000? So what it's saying is there's still a lot of people that haven't heard the gospel. A lot of diverse ethnic groups that still haven't heard the gospel. There's people in Australia that have never heard the gospel. And, and some of them were born here. Some of them have come from other countries, but they still don't know what the gospel is. But my point is this. I think it's worse than that. Because the Bible talks about the gospel of the kingdom. And when you look at and understand what Jesus specified, it's got to be the gospel of the kingdom that's preached as a witness. The idea is that there must be a demonstration of the power of the kingdom. The kingdom of God will change anyone. Religion will change no one. Religion... Jesus said, will turn you into twice the son of hell as the Pharisees. But the kingdom, the message of the kingdom will change your life, will deliver you, will set you free, will heal you, will put peace in your heart, will put peace in your heart. Whatever you need comes as a result of the gospel of the kingdom. So what does that mean? It means we have a lot of people that have never embraced the kingdom message, even sitting in our churches. They have a form of godliness, but that denies the power. Okay? And it says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, in the New Living Translation, they'll act religious, but they'll reject the power that could transform them. So there's a sense in which people aren't changing. They aren't becoming like Christ. They're not living in the fullness of this gospel. 
And I know we all go through seasons and there's very practical things that we can do to obviously, you know, stay strong spiritually. We need to pray. We need to deal, help make sure that a soul is healthy. I get that. I understand that. But the point is that it's this power of the kingdom that's going to really change people's lives. It's the power of the kingdom. So what has happened is when people sin, when people, people that don't even, and by the way, by sin, we're born in sin, aren't we? So we're born in sin. And so there's a sense in which people naturally sin, right? That's why it's so really foolish to expect unsaved people to act like Christians. You know what I'm saying? It's not in them. They don't have the potential. That seed is not in them. I mean, sinners sin. Whoa, that's deep, right? Okay, sinners sin. But when you're born again... The Bible says you have a new nature. First John chapter 3, verse 9 says the seed of God is in you. And now that seed of God, what is that? It's the very nature of God. And so now it's unnatural for you to sin. It's unnatural for you to sin. But do I sin? Do you sin? Yeah, but it's not according to our nature. That's why you feel bad. That's why you're like, this ain't right. Because the truth is, you are sinning and you are doing something that goes against the nature, the very person of Christ that is in you. So what happens is when we live in a place where we don't know who we are, we don't understand why God created us, and then, then we have this, you know, we have this void in our lives. There's this emptiness in us. And people begin to seek fulfillment in things. People begin to try to fill that void in relationships, material things, drugs, sex, all these different things, and they'll never, ever be fulfilled. They'll never, ever be fulfilled. And, and this is what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. He said, they exchanged the knowledge of the truth for a lie. And he said, and what they ended up doing is they worshiped the creature and, instead of the creator. Think about that. What is, what is it when people are running through life and they're worshiping what God created instead of the one who created it all? You know, God created people, but we're not supposed to put people first. God created all things for us to enjoy, but we're not supposed to put these things first in our lives. They can become idols. Now, God says you'll never find fulfillment, you'll never find satisfaction until you know who you are, that you're my son, that you're my daughter, and that your fulfillment in life will only come through an intimate and personal knowledge with me. Secondly, when death entered the world, and what is death? Death is losing a sense of your identity and your intimacy with God. Secondly, it's in a sense, it's you've lost... Glory and honor. You're created for glory and honor. You were created to rule. You're created to be the head, not the tail. You're created to be the victor, not the victim. The Bible says that we were created to actually rule and reign in life, right? We already looked at this in Genesis 1 and in Psalm chapter 8 over everything. Now, when, of course, when that was written, there was no sin, there was no sickness, there was no disease. There was no demonic spirits, you know, possessing people at that time. 
But we end up reading in the New Testament when Jesus takes the tw- calls the 12 and, and he delegates his authority to them. He says to heal every sickness, cast out every demon, do whatever it takes. I've given you all authority is what he said. So he's restoring the authority that was lost. It's an amazing thing. So that we can walk in a place of power. So we're moved to that place where sin would not have dominion over us. Sickness will no longer destroy us. Evil spirits will not enslave us. We move to a place of of victory rather than being victims. Christ came into the world to give back to humankind the life that was lost in the garden. I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly is what he said. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's Apollyon. But I've come to give you life. In the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis refers to what is called Zoe, and in the Greek, it's bios. We might say bios. In the Greek language, there's two words for life. There's Zoe, and there's bios, B-I-O-S. And bios, we get our word biology from. And it speaks of natural life, in a sense. It speaks of kind of like, you know, the specific natural part of it. It's where Zoe, it goes way beyond that. Zoe can include the natural. It does include the natural, but it includes life, the way we were created to know it and experience it. We were created to know life spiritually. We were created to know life in our soul. We were created to know life physically in every way. And the point is, is that Jesus refers to us that he came to give us what kind of life do you think? Zoe. What kind of life? Come on, tell me. Zoe. Zoe life. He came to give us Zoe life. And that life, he said, is life that will fulfill you, that will change you. You'll know the fullness of my life. Because Paul refers to, in in 1 Timothy, he said, they are alive, but they're dead. You know, in Ephesians 2, verse 1, he's preaching to people that are alive, obviously. They're reading his epistle. But he says, you're dead in trespasses and sins. So he's saying, I've come to give you life. And the day you sin in dying, you will die. In the day you sin, in the day you eat this fruit, in dying, you will die. You, you enter into a place where the death process has begun in your life. Spiritually, you're dead. Spiritually, you're dead. And so people go through life. It's so sad. You look at them and you, you see darkness in their eyes. You see a sad countenance. You see no joy. You see no peace in their life. Because why? The life of God is not in them. They're alive physically. They have bios or bios life, but they don't have zoe life. And Jesus saying, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. It means roundabout all over and through. Perisosmos in the Greek, it means to pierce, to saturate, to permeate, in other words. Not just to pour in a little bit, but to give it to you in completion. And that life was when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. He gives us life. Guess what kind of life he gives us, guys? Zoe life, right? Okay. So I want you to see this. When we 
come to Christ, when we believe the gospel, something powerful happens. I want to read this to you from Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Listen to this. God is the Old Testament. He's prophesying about the new covenant. What's going to happen when Messiah comes after his death and resurrection? What's going to happen? He says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. Of course, this has an application to Israel. I get it. But ultimately, it has an application to everyone in the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Boom. Like that. Done. And dusted. That's it. Wow. I'm going to sprinkle water on you, and you will be clean. But Lord, that's it. What do I do? I mean, surely there's some more involved in that. No. The moment you're born again, the blood of Jesus Christ and the water that comes from God, the word, actually cleanses you and makes you clean. Boom! You're clean. Wow. So the spirit of just men or righteous men, Hebrews 12 says, is made perfect. Wow. Okay. So what does he do? He says, and I says, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Listen to this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Then look at this. The NIV puts it this way. And I will put my spirit in you. Wow. And guess what my spirit's going to do? Move you. My spirit is going to move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Wow, guys, I think this sounds a bit like grace. Um, I think this, this sounds a bit like God is doing everything here, but our part is simply to respond. You know, I'm not a surfer, but I know you got to ride the wave. And our job is to ride the wave, that's it. We can't create the wave, but we need to catch the wave. And we, we catch the wave with all that force, and we don't really, we just ride it, right? And that's what he's saying. This is what it's all about. I will change you. I will not only cleanse you and make you holy. He said, I'm going to do a work in you because I put a new heart in you. I put a new spirit in you. And that new heart and that new spirit no longer delights in doing what you want to do, but it actually has a, pro a proclivity to respond and do what I want you to do. And my spirit in you, uppercase S, is going to move you to obey my word. You know, that's why the truth is, like, if people don't obey God, if they don't have a desire to obey God, I really question whether they've been saved. Because God's word says very clearly that when you're born again, you have this new spirit in you. You fill with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to move you, going to prompt you to do the will of God. So the things that you used to love, you hate, and the things you used to hate, you love. He begins to change you. He, he begins to remove from you.
these desires. And you say, well, I still have these desires. I'm still tempted. I still give in to these things. Yes, but the Spirit of God is moving in you. And the reason why you feel so terrible is because the Spirit is moving in you. And, and the Spirit is saying, you, you're not supposed to live like this. This isn't who you are. This is what your lot. This is what you were created for. I've got something better. I've got holiness. I've got righteousness. I've got peace and joy. I've got dominion and authority for your life so that you can live above all of this. You don't have to walk around wounded and hurt and, and victimized. You know, you, you, can, you can realize that the spirit of God that is in you and on the work of the cross of Calvary will cleanse you. And as you respond to the moving of the spirit, you'll begin to see that your soul is changing and your, the way you think is changing and the thoughts of your life are changed and, and all of the things that happen to you it just begins to change. It's an inside out righteousness. It isn't from the outside like we try to do certain things. It's inside out. And that's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you think that righteousness is about how you look on the outside and how you present yourself and by how you appear in a very ostentatious type of faith. But I'm telling you, first clean the inside of the cup and then the, once the inside of the cup is cleansed and the outside will be cleansed as well. So this is, this is just grace is what it is because grace is the power of God at work. You know, the Romans 6, 14 says, sin shall have no dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace, right? It says in Romans chapter 5, I believe it's verse 17, it says, if you've received the gift of righteousness and abundance of grace, abundance of grace, it's so you might rule and reign in life. That's the purpose of the gift of of righteousness. Come on now, the gift of righteousness and abundance of grace is so that you will rule and reign in life to restore you to a place where you live like a son of God. You live like a daughter of God. You live like royalty. You you live as a king, as a queen, that you have authority. You know, a king or a queen, and they don't have to be strong or powerful. A little child, remember Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and yet all he needed to do was do that, man. It didn't matter who came against him. The whole guards of the palace and the entire army is backing him up. When you realize who you are, it has nothing to do with your age and how long you're in Christ or anything so you just know your authority because I'm a son, I'm a daughter. And when I call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, I'll be delivered. I'll be delivered. So whosoever calls, I remember that song years ago, I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be delivered or saved from my enemies. Souls out. Wow. I'll be delivered. We have this authority. We have this backing. So we can just say, but what do we do? Oh, man. <sighs> This thing's got a hold on me. Slap yourself in the head, then slap that in the head. Come on now. Come on now. Turn to your neighbor and slap. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> Don't do that. We might have to fill out an incident report. Now. Don't do that. But seriously, come on. Just look at yourself in the mirror and say, shut up. Come on. Shut up. We just sometimes, that's what we need to do is just tell ourselves to shut up. To stop talking in the flesh. Stop believing lies. Begin to believe the truth. 
I'm a son. I'm a daughter of God. I've been born again. I've got a new spirit in me. I've been cleansed. I've been made righteous. And his spirit is dealing with my soul. His spirit is working in me, giving me not only the desire, but the power to do what is pleasing. Wow. I love Philippians 2.13, you know, for it is God who works in you, giving you what? Working in you both to will and to do is good pleasure. One translation says this. It says, it was, we grow in intimacy with him. He works in our soul, and he gives us both the power and the desire to do what pleases him. Philippians 2.13. He gives you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. He gives. Gives. Doesn't say he sells. It says he gives. How many know that give means gift? Gift, right? He gives you the gift to be desirous, willing, and able to do what pleases him. It's a gift. So why do you work for it? Receive it. Receive it. What is all of this? It's Zoe life. I've come that you might have life, right? The Son of Man has come to seek and to sozo that which was what? Killed. That which was ruined. That which was destroyed. That which was murdered. So what is the opposite of something? Something is killed, it dies, right? So what did Jesus come to do? Bring life. Bring life back to us. Zoe life. How do we experience life? It's not pie in the sky when we die. It's like one day when I die, I'm going to have eternal life. No, no. You believe in him, you receive eternal life. Right now. The moment you believe, you experience eternal life. The Bible is very clear about that. Jesus said it. Read the Gospel of John. Over and over and over again, he says, the Son has come to give you life, 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 life. He says it dozens and dozens of times. I've come to give you life. I've come to give you life. You need life because why? Why do we need life, guys? We're dead, right? Yeah, one day we, there will be a resurrection. We'll experience life in that sense. But he talks about it repeatedly as something that happens in our spirit and in our soul. We experience life. We experience life. How do we experience life? It's called abundant life. It's called everlasting life. God so loved the world. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not die but have everlasting what? Zoe. So what is he saying? He's saying now you can have this life. Now you can experience this life. Like, man, you're walking around. You're empty. You, you don't know the one who created you in his image and likeness. And so you've got this void in you. You might have been taught some, some you know, religious nonsense. And, and you've been trying to, you know, be a righteous person. But you, you don't realize that righteousness is, first of all, a gift. And we have to receive the gift and we have to access it and use it. But it's a gift. You can't do anything. It's given to you. Now, live righteously, you know, take that power of righteousness and use it as a weapon to destroy the things of the flesh. But ultimately, it's still a gift, right? When you sign up to be in the, in the military, you know, you, you, do your, you do all you need to do, and then the day comes, okay, we're shipping you off to boot camp. 
you go to boot camp and you go through training, and then there comes a point where they give you a weapon. M4, M16, whatever it is, they put it in your hand, and they say, okay, this is your weapon. You need to learn how to use this thing. And, you know, you don't shoot it right away. you got to tear it apart, put it back together again, grease it, all the stuff, right? And you have to learn that first. But when you join the Army, they don't say to you, okay, guys, go to boot camp, and you know what? The bus leaves at this time. It'll cost you $50 to get there, or there's a flight, and or, or they don't say to you, and um, by the way, we know a, a place where you can get a discount on the weapons you're going to need. They, what do they do? They give everything to you. It's provided, right? You signed up. It's provided. When you signed up to follow Jesus, he gives you the weapons. He gives you the training. He gives you everything that you need to be able to overcome. Your part is just to commit. Your part is to respond, to receive the training, to receive the weapons, to whatever he gives to you, and you begin to use it. And then you'll be successful in what you do. Eternal life. What is eternal life? Listen to this. John 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal zoe. That they want, yeah, ginosko in Greek, ginosko. What is ginosko? Joseph, ginosko, Mary, and she, after Jesus was born, Joseph, ginosko, Mary, and she had children. The point is, what? It has to do with intimacy, right? So what happens? This is eternal life. So they can know you. They can gnosko you, Father. And what? The only true God in Jesus. Eternal life happens as we know him. Eternal life is experienced in intimacy, in union. Union. Because we are in Christ. That, what is that? The Bible says we are in Christ. Christ is in us. What is that? Union. Co-union. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. Right? The Bible talks about that. My words be in you and you be in my words. If I'm in you and you are in me. Wow. Jesus talked about that a lot. What is he saying? Co-union. We are one with him. And then what happens when we are in co-union with Jesus, then we can have communion with Jesus. And communion means now we are sharing. We are ministering, in a sense, to one another. And as we live in this place of communion with Christ, we experience the power and love of his life flowing into us, healing our emotions, purifying our affections, captivating our desires, and restoring our souls. And that's why Jesus, the very last thing he taught his disciples on the final week of his life was all about 
the truth that he would be, he's the vine and we are branches and our union is in him. Just as a branch is connected to a vine, our union is in him. And if we stay connected to him, there's this communion, there's this transfer of life so that the life that is in the vine flows into the branch and it begins to bring change and transformation. It bears fruit effortlessly. Look at the way the Passion Translation puts it. So you must remain in life union with me, Jesus said, for I remain in life union with you. For as a branch severed from the vine will not bear fruit, so your life will be fruitless unless you live your life intimately joined to mine. So good. I am the sprouting vine and you're my branches. As you live in union with me as your source, fruitfulness will stream from within you, but when you live separated from me, you are powerless. Wow. I've said this before. The Bible uses the term in John 15, 4, you know, abide in me, right? Jesus said abide or remain, some translations say. Abiding is the process. Bearing fruit is a promise. If we abide, we'll bear fruit. And because why? It's his life streaming, flowing into us. So our focus should be recognizing our union with him and then developing communion. And as we develop communion, his life begins to change us. He gives us the desires of his heart. We begin to change. We begin to change. When I came to Christ, I had a lot of issues. I had addictions. I had a lot of stuff. And when I came to Christ, what I learned, and the Holy Spirit taught me this, really, because there were people like, you need to go to this program. You need to do this. And I went to a program, and I was kicked out in a week. I'm telling you the truth. I got kicked out of Teen Challenge when I was 16 years old in the city of Toronto in Canada. I lasted less than a week. Okay? And I had no desire to be there. It was, it was like tormenting me being there. I hated it. I didn't want to change. I didn't want to be there. But then when I really had an encounter with God and he got a hold of me, what happened was my desires changed. All of a sudden now, I didn't want to do those things. All of a sudden, now I wanted to be righteous. I wanted to be holy. I wanted to have a, a pure mind. I wanted to have peace. And I wanted to stop doing the things I used to do. And it, the Holy Spirit just taught me. He said, all you need to do is focus on spending time with me. Get alone every day in prayer, in the word. Worship me. Pray. Commune with me. And I'll start changing. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. I struggled. I fell when I first came to Christ. I kept uh, messing up. But then eventually, when I started doing that, and it started off with the Holy Spirit saying, me, you need to spend an hour every day in worship and prayer, not being religious, not putting in, punching the spiritual time clock, but really just focusing on loving me, knowing me. I'll teach you how to pray. I'll teach you what to do. And then he told me to take it to another level. And I just kept doing it and I kept doing it. Without any counseling, without any Freudian psychotherapy, I changed. And 
I became a person who I believe had a pure heart. And God absolutely changed my desires. You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change, like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on, and Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. P please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.